Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Nick. And I'm your host, Nicole. (laughs) And today we are here with Danielle Spice. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So my first question today is, what program are you in and what do you study? I am in the Collaborative Developmental Biology program, and technically that means I'm in the biology department, and I study cell signaling pathways during neural development. Very cool. So are you doing your PhD? I am doing my PhD. Awesome. So why don't we unpack what you just said about Mm. what you're studying. So you uh, study something called Sonic Hedgehog, if I'm not mistaken. So I love the name of this, Mm -hmm. but tell us what it does. Sure. So Sonic Hedgehog is a protein that is secreted or basically just pumped out of the cell and then it will diffuse and it will bind to its receptor on a neighboring cell. And depending on the context and then it'll cause downstream changes in gene expression in the cell that it kind of touches. And then in my project, I'm looking at how hedgehog signaling is involved specifically in the development of different neural cell fates. That's such a cool name. Why is it called that? So um, Drosophila geneticists like to name things that are super fun. (laughs) So it was actually discovered in Drosophila. And when they knocked it out, they found that instead of if you don't know Drosophila very well, they have these little hairs on their back. These are like fruit flies, right? Yeah, Yeah. sorry, fruit flies. And so these hairs, when they knocked out Sonic Hedgehog, turned into like scales almost. And they decided that the fruit flies, instead of looking like flies, they looked like hedgehogs. But like the the video game character too. Yeah, so (laughs) there's only the one hedgehog ligand in, or protein, in fruit flies. And then when they discovered them in mammals, there's three of them. And so whoever discovered it in mammals, I guess they liked video games. So decided (laughs) to name it after the video game character. Nice. And so is this Sonic Hedgehog proteins, Mm -hmm. are they, um, so you're saying that you're studying them in in neurons, uh, but do they also appear in other kinds of cells? Yeah. So kind of the idea of where it originated from with hair follicles. So hedgehog signaling is really important in the maintenance of what's called the stem cell niche. And all of our hair follicles, humans and fruit flies alike, we have these stem cells that will eventually in our hair follicles that will allow for hair to form. Very cool. So Mm. these, um, but so what would you say then is sort of like the the be-all and end-all definition of sonic hedgehog proteins? Like, what do they do for, in general? Or what would not having them cause? Yeah, so if you don't have, at least sonic hedgehog, the kind of its main role in vertebrate development or anything that has a backbone is in neural development. If you don't have sonic hedgehog, you're not gonna have a spinal cord, you're not gonna have brain structures, you don't develop. Hmm. And is this commonly seen in mammals or humans? Or uh, You wouldn't see it to the extent of like someone would walk around and have a mutation in Sonic Hedgehog because if like a human, for instance, doesn't have Sonic Hedgehog signaling, then they would likely spontaneously abort. Hmm. Um, hedgehog signaling is also really important in the patterning of our face. 
And so if you also don't have hedgehog signaling, you likely don't have like the midline of your face. So you wouldn't have like a nose. And it's also really important in digit development. That's probably the one place where if you don't have proper hedgehog signaling that you actually will survive if it happens to just happen in your digits. Because it can, if you've ever heard of polydactyly. No. So basically when you have more than your five fingers, then it's called polydactyly and hedgehog signaling is involved in that. So if you have too much of it, you might have like an extra pinky when you're not supposed to have it. Total hmm. side note, but did you ever read the chrysalids? I have. Yeah, remember how she has six toes? Mm-hmm. Maybe she was missing Sonic Hedgehog. She had too was. much. Yeah. Or she had too much of or it. Too much. Yeah. yeah. So and then now you're studying Sonic Hedgehog uh, in neuron mm-hmm. cells, and uh, so what? You know, when I first heard of Sonic Hedgehog, you know, this is something that we sort of learn in university classes, mm-hmm. right? It's it's something that is um, like that people who know stuff about the brain will know about. Um, so I always thought that we kind of know about what Sonic Hedgehog does, but what don't we know? So in spite of the fact that we've known kind of how important Hedgehog is in neural development, when it comes to the actual, well, when it comes to the actual molecular side of how the protein interactions happen once Sonic Hedgehog has actually bound its target cell, we have absolutely no idea what's going on. Like, as a for instance, um, its receptor is called patched. And up until, oh my gosh, only a couple weeks ago, really, it was just this kind of black box of how exactly does the receptor inhibit the next step in the pathway when Sonic Hedgehog isn't there. And it was thought for a long time to be through what are called sterile signaling, which is basically just like you've heard of, you know, like estrogen and testosterone and stuff like that. So these types of ring structured fats, basically. And it was thought for a long time that these sterols were how these things were communicating, but like nobody had any idea how that was happening. And basically for every interaction in the pathway, and there's a lot, there's this black box of unknown. Uh, and you're saying, like, just last week, so is this a very competitive field to be in? Like, is there constantly that stress of you need to figure something out? Kind of, yeah. Thankfully, people study it in a lot of different contexts. And signaling pathways in general can be very context-dependent. So, you know, in terms of publishing and, like, getting stuff done, there's a little less pressure from that. Um, but there's definitely some, like, really, really big names that have been studying hedgehog signaling for forever and you know you like you follow them on twitter and you like keep up with their papers and stuff and they just accomplish things that you would never be able to do all on your own (laughs) yeah and this sounds like a really really complicated pathway but like how do you generally how do you study it in your lab Mm. yeah so basically in my lab i study kind of how you go from a stem cell into a neuron and so Yes, I care about the molecular side of how the pathway is interacting, but I also care about the endpoint. So when my like day-to-day kind of looks like, I go to the lab, I check out my cells under the microscope, make sure they're happy and healthy. I, you know, when they've grown too much that they don't fit in their plate anymore, I put them into a new plate, uh, freeze them, that kind of stuff, collect proteins, collect RNA, which is basically just our message for like gene expression that we can quantify. 
a lot of, you know, looking at one thing to infer something that the cells are showing us. Mm-hmm. What would you say for, I know like most people when they think like studying biology, they're looking at like, oh, studying mice or Drosophila or something like that. Like what would you say the benefit of looking at molecular biology and cells is over looking, studying animals? For sure, the cost is 100% like the main thing. Like mice just, this is just like a ballpark. I don't actually work with mice, so I don't actually know the real numbers, but something like two to like $10,000 a month in just like husbandry costs. Wow. Let alone like reagents and, you know, like euthanasia and like that kind of stuff. Whereas like cells, they're just cells. They just (laughs) chill. I think the biggest expense would be like buying antibodies and like media, but that's like hardly it. Plus, especially when we're talking about like vertebrate or like mammalian model systems, Nobody there's has really any moral issues with me killing cells. <laughs> Some people have problems with the stem cells. Yes, yeah, definitely yeah, with yeah, stem yeah. cells. <laughs> In my work, however, um, I don't even work with stem cells, really. Yeah. They're stem-like cells. So I even get around that issue, yeah. too. I guess, like, the, the reason why people do mice is for the behavioral aspect, right? Yeah, depending. I mean, like, as a developmental biologist... Like, if I were to do similar, like, CRISPR knockouts, Mm. I wouldn't do a CRISPR in a mouse, for instance. But if I were to do the same gene knockout, like, they wouldn't even become adults. They Mm. would die before they even got to that stage. So you can can infer a whole heck of a lot just from them doing that. So you mentioned just now CRISPR. Mm-hmm. Now this is something that's been on the news. I'm sure a lot of the n- listeners have heard about this. Yeah. So why don't you unpack what CRISPR is? Sure. Do you want me to tell you what it actually stands for? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Let's start it's, there. <laughs> it stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. That's a mouthful. I know. Okay. No one's ever going to remember time. that. Yeah. So <laughs> I always think of the, the chips. You know, the chips, the CRISPR oh, crackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. nice. <laughs> Love CRISPRs. Yeah, me all too. dressed, all dressed, all dressed, but ranch sometimes. Ooh, ranch yeah, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good choice. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so basically, it was discovered in bacteria, and it's an innate bacterial response to a viral infection. So what these bacteria did or still do is they would be infected by a virus they would kind of take a bit of that virus and then they would insert it into their own dna and then in this clustered crispr area in their genomes it would be this little bit of viral dna that they had integrated would be expressed and would be coupled with a protein called an endonuclease. And that's just a fancy word for a protein that can cut DNA. And so this viral DNA would then find similar viral DNA that was like a new infection and then would target this DNA cutting protein to basically degrade that new virus. So what molecular biologists have done is they've been able to harness this idea But instead of combating a viral infection, we can do it to specifically target a gene region of a particular target gene that we want to get rid of, 
or knock out. And basically this endonuclease or this DNA cutting enzyme will cause a double-stranded break. And then in our cells, we utilize our own innate DNA damage response mechanism. So this is called non-homologous end joining. And basically that's a fancy word for the cell takes two pieces of DNA when there's been a double-stranded break and just slaps them together. Doesn't care how it happens. They just literally slap them together. And when this happens, it causes insertions and deletions of different nucleotides. And when you have an insertion or deletion, it generally causes that gene to no longer be functional or to no longer be expressed. So the main benefit that you can get from this is that you can sort of cut genes apart and mm-hmm. turn them on and off. Is that yeah. sort of right? Yeah. So the way that I use it specifically is that I target it towards my particular genes of interest. It will cut. Non-homologous end joining will cause a insertion or deletion. And then from that, this gene no longer goes to the end point of becoming a protein. And then whatever its functions were was is no longer being had in the cell. So basically, it's like you can find out what different parts of this um, like signaling pathway uh, do by taking them out. Exactly. Okay. So what did CRISPR allow you to do that we didn't have before? So we could have done this before using what's called RNA interference. And basically what RNA interference does is instead of knocking out a gene, it just knocks it down. So the main kind of thing that CRISPR allows us to do is we have literally none of this protein anymore. Mm. Whereas with RNA interference, you still had kind of like a basal level of this protein and you had to quantify the efficiency of your knockdown and that kind of stuff. Whereas now it's just there, it's not. And that is huge because a lot of the time in RNAi studies, like you can read in, in their discussion, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, we saw this phenotype, but it could have potentially been stronger if it had been actual knockout. So it's just cleaner. Cool. And what, what would be the application of your research like for real world, real world type stuff? Yeah. So when I discuss my research with kind of the public, I like to kind of frame it as a way for us to better understand a very common childhood brain cancer called medulloblastoma. And whenever we're talking about cancer, they always have these like crazy long names that nobody ever understands. So basically it's a hindbrain cancer, like right almost at your brain stem. So where your brain meets your spinal cord. And so this area of the brain is really important for balance and just like basic motor functions. So you can imagine that if a child has this cancer, they have very low survival rates, as well as if they do survive and they are able to surgically remove these tumors, that they will have some serious deficits. So in my research, hedgehog signaling in medulloblastoma is overactivated. And so if I can knock out genes and then have hedgehog signaling being overactivated and then subsequently find out what happens to either neural or kind of brain support cell development, it might give us a better understanding of how that particular gene could be mutated that could lead to medulloblastoma in a child. Well, it looks like you're just going to have to come back and do another episode once you figure <laughs> that out. <laughs> how many more years of your PhD do you have? Uh, oh... 
a year and eight months. Oh, okay. Well, hurry. I know, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> so outside <Hurry>. of your <laughs> PhD, what do you like to do? Uh, well, when I was in my undergrad, I played rugby for Western. Woo! <laughs> but now that my eligibility is up and I, you know, I'm older now than I was. I'm not so spry anymore. <laughs> um, now I have my dog that I love that I would walk all the time and I, you know, do CrossFit workout. Nice. Yeah. What's your dog's name? His name is Reggie Aww. and he's a golden retriever. He's amazing. Oh, if people want to come and pet him and see him, where would they find you? They would find me in the Biological and Geological Sciences Building on the third floor in 3004. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's nice that campus allows you to have dogs everywhere. Oh, except where they serve food, right? Yeah. So I know they're not allowed in all of the buildings, but biology has been quite generous and they are pretty welcoming to having dogs around as long as obviously like they're friendly and they get along with everyone yeah i think they were actually seriously considering like not even two weeks ago maybe to uh ban people from bringing dogs into like buildings that was what yeah and then like all the profs who do do that like were like no (laughs) there's a lot of professors and like a lot of them so they technically maybe don't quote me on this but i've heard that they actually have it written into their contracts that they're allowed to bring dogs in. So they wouldn't be allowed to actually stop professors from bringing their dogs in, but they could stop like grad students and support staff and like that kind of stuff who That's do ridiculous. bring their dogs in. They're harmless. <laughs> yeah. I just want to bring a cat in. I actually, there's a girl that <laughs> walks around campus with a cat in like a strap bag. I always see her. It's wherever you are. <laughs> Yeah. I like your there cat. There's definitely been professors who have had a cat in their office. Yeah, that would be amazing. In bio. I also <laughs> saw a bunny on a leash the other day, too, like right in front of BGS. A I bunny? think bunnies are gross. <laughs> Why? Their ears are disturbing. I mean, they're big, but what's so disturbing about them? That, that. <laughs> it's, it's wrong. <laughs> what about like a beagle? Like a dog with big ears. I, I don't know what that looks like, so. They're like the dogs that, like, their ears, like, hit the oh, floor. No, you're oh, thinking, you're thinking about Basset Hound. No, 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 oh, no, 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 but, like, oh, God, come on. So cute. The rabbits, it's like, they stick out. Yeah. It's, like, too weird. Much. Just yeah, too much it is ear. too much. Yeah, it is too much. <laughs> too much ear. <laughs> Not proportional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to get back. I have a few more, few more questions okay. to ask about, uh, oh, our producer showing me a photo of that dog right now. But you see those, uh, but no, but that those ears are fine because they are they you know they hate gravity, they <laughs> they uh, they um, go according to the laws of gravity, whereas rabbits definitely do not. Uh-huh. Um, so There's way too much cartilage for Nick. Th- yeah, He's not it's a fan. too much. So anyway, I have a few more questions about uh-huh. Sonic Hedgehog. So, what are some of the results that you're finding so far? Like, what are the yeah. new things that you're seeing? Yeah, so in one of my knockouts, I have basically turned on the pathway too much. And when I've done this, I've actually seen a shift away from neurons forming and more towards those support cells forming. So those are the glial cells? Glial cells. Glial cells. Yeah. So tell me about that for some of our listeners. Yeah, totally. So in the brain, you have all these different types of cells. So whenever we think of the brain, usually we think of neurons. And these are the cells that are actually going to be sending our electrical currents. But 
neurons are what are called post-mitotic. So they don't divide once they've become a neuron, they stay a neuron, and they never divide again. So neurons need lots of support in order to actually survive for that long. So glial cells, we have three different types. Some have different origins. One are called astrocytes, and they're going to support more in the brain than anywhere else. We also have oligodendrocytes, and they're going to be our what are called myelinating cells, and they're going to be helping our really long, long neurons to fire action potentials or to cause that electrical current over long distances. For instance, if we want to, you know, walk and we have our axons that let go from our brain like all the way down to our legs we need to make sure that that happens in a pretty timely manner so oligodendrocytes are going to help us with that and then we have microglia and they're kind of the immune cells of the brain but they have a different developmental origin than oligodendrocytes and astrocytes so just to clarify they're all like nourishing cells right like they're yeah. just help and there's kind of helpers the of the brain okay mm-hmm. so now that you're you're seeing that um some of the changes that you've made to this mm-hmm. pathway are creating more of these support cells. Yeah. So what what does that mean? In the context of like medulloblastoma, for instance, this could mean that these support cells or like potentially the cancer that we're seeing might be more of a support cell origin rather than like a neural or like a neural precursor origin potentially. Um, Also, not only have I been seeing that there is like a shift towards more glial cell development, but there's actually a decrease in the number of long-lived neurons. So what could also be happening is when I overactivate this pathway that there could just be so many support cells that they're basically suffocating the neurons. But I always thought that cancer is when cells multiply too much. Yeah. And a blastoma, is that not neurons multiplying too much? Or can that also be support cells? So that would be a neuroblastoma would Ah, be more specific. Medulloblastoma can be a little bit different Mm -hmm. just because of its like origins, for instance. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Blastomas are for sure just like going out of control. But maybe if there's healthy glial cells everywhere they wouldn't leave enough room for exactly bad but that's cells glioblastoma to divide. yeah already yeah so interesting yeah i like i said i i sell it as like medulloblastoma is like what i'm kind of like going for but at the end of the day my my research is much more like basic science and trying to understand mm-hmm. that if we do alter the Definitely. pathway kind of just at a basic developmental level what changes that's awesome mm. And so what are you thinking after you're done your PhD? Do you want to do a postdoc and keep working on this type of research, or are you done with school? Uh, probably going to do a postdoc. Um, I think I, if I could, you know, get everything that I want, I'd probably be a professor at a university. So that career path means postdoc time. Mm-hmm. But I like teaching, so I think in the postdoc world, I'm going to probably miss the outlet of teaching like that we have in grad school like TAing and stuff like that to actually have that interaction with students but I like research too much to only teach mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and would you want to stay at Western because I know you did your undergrad master's now PhD here uh, probably not <laughs> uh, Western has been super great for me obviously like playing varsity getting my undergrad here PhD now like the life that I have now would not be the same without Western but I think after 
being here for almost 10 years, I think it'll be time to move on. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> Where would you want to go? Um, oh gosh, there's a couple places. Um, U of T has a couple labs that I would be really interested in working with. Um, one in the biochemistry department and then one at SickKids. And they do some really cool research. The one at SickKids is actually work, that works on glioblastomas. So that'd be kind of like a shift, but like similar. Um, and then there's also a couple labs. There's one in uh, University College London that I could totally work with. Um, he, the like supervisor there, he basically like discovered what hedgehog does in mammals. So that would be like crazy cool. Celebrity but, basically. Oh yeah, yeah. like huge celebrity yeah, yeah. status. Yeah. I mean, as much as, you know, well, biologists science, can be celebrity, celebrity status. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that would be pretty cool. Or there's this hospital in Memphis, Tennessee called St. Jude's. And I've talked to them a couple times and they, unlike a lot of places in the States, none of their patients pay for their services. Wow. So it's like huge donations. Their research campus has like so much money going towards childhood, you know, illnesses and stuff like that. And I would like, I like the idea of like staying in childhood-ish illnesses, mm -hmm. which is kind of cool. Because I don't think, especially in childhood cancers, I don't really think there's enough like research going into that at wow, the moment. It would be so cool to live in Memphis. Yeah. I think it was so cool. <laughs> Certainly, I'd be jealous. It'd, be, it'd definitely be a huge change from London. Yes, it, it would, would be, be very warm be, and yeah. there would be, I, can, I feel like, I've never been to Memphis, but I feel like there'd be like a lot of music and a lot of, you know. A lot of Americans. A lot of Americans. <laughs> yeah. Aren't there yeah. a bunch of songs about Memphis? Yes. Actually, <laughs> I just had, I, I listen to trivia in the car if I'm doing long drives and they just had a question about what was the city name that appeared in most songs in Memphis. Really? Was, yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's probably like so much music there. Yeah. And Nashville is like a hop, skip, yeah. and a jump away. Yeah. So there's that too. But you like country music? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> most people don't like to admit that. <laughs> no, I like um, like pop country rather uh -huh. than, I don't, I'm like, not like, you know, grassroots country. I'm a little too, a little too basic for that. <laughs> Let's be real. That's funny. Well, I wish you all the best luck with that. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if anyone wants to learn more about your research, um, is there a website or social media slash email that they can? Yeah, totally. To? So uh, you can follow my Twitter account at Spice Danielle. Pretty simple. And I tweet about kind of stuff in the lab. Yeah. I really love that Twitter handle. Yeah. That's awesome. Pretty, basic. <laughs> pretty, pretty nice. <laughs> well, Danielle, it has been a great pleasure to have you on. Um, yeah, we really, we really liked chatting with you. Um, this has been Gradcast. Sorry, I'm going to start that again. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Nick. And I've been your co-host, Nicole. And we've been speaking with... Danielle. And this episode was produced by Greg Robinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show, you can get in contact with us uh, by email, uh, gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio for updates on new episodes. To listen to us, we are on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. and every other Thursday at 1.30 p.m. That's a new time for listeners out there. You can also find our uh, all our old archived episodes at our website at gradcast.ca 
or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you so much for listening and have a great night. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.